This month on Security Management Highlights. There's something about a biological attack that, that raises a special level of fear. Biological agents can be used for the greater good or to carry out terrible harm. National Security Editor Lily Chapa stops by to discuss a new report from the U.S. government that highlights potential worst-case scenarios. So it seems like there's something almost every single week about election security, obviously because it's a big topic going into the, the midterms in just a couple of months. Will the 28 18 U.S. midterm elections be a repeat of the cyber hacks and attacks that affected the 2016 elections? Cybersecurity editor Megan Gates is here to share the latest. Plus, Marco Rubin from the Center for Innovative Technology stops by to talk about drones. We'll also tell you a little more about the GSX 2018 D3 Experience, a special pavilion that explores interactive robots and unmanned technologies. I'm your host, Associate Editor Holly Gilbert Stowell, and that's all coming up on this edition of Security Management Highlights. Advances in science that benefit humanity also provide bad actors with potentially harmful opportunities to conduct an attack. Here to talk more about a recent U.S. government report on this issue is National Security Editor Lily Chapa. Hi, Lily. Thanks for stopping by. Hi, Holly. Can you explain what the dual-use problem is when it comes to biological advancements? Sure. This concept is pretty universal, and I'm sure security practitioners have come across it in many verticals. But in the biological field, it refers to a breakthrough or advancement that could pave the way for important treatment or vaccines when used with noble intentions, but could also be used for nefarious purposes, like creating super viruses or bringing back eradicated diseases. This actually played out pretty recently when scientists in Canada reconstructed an old pox virus for research purposes and shared their methods. The goal is for scientists to use the process to create vaccines, but it could also be used to bring back smallpox. So it's both, you know, hopeful that they can use these advances to treat, you know, disease and other problems. But yes, very scary that threat actors can get a hold of them, too, and use them for harm. To sort of counter that possibility, the U.S. Department of Defense, they commissioned a report to highlight the dual use problem and the threats that come with it. Who actually wrote that report and what did the researchers say? Yeah, the Defense Department worked with the National Academies of Sciences to determine the top emerging synthetic biology threats. If you have time, you should definitely read it. It goes through all these really crazy scenarios and breaks down how much of a threat they are based on how easy the scientific technology is to use, how good of a weapon it might be, what materials would be required to actually carry out an attack, and the ability to detect and mitigate an attack. The report outlined several possibilities but identified three high-risk threats. And you spoke with someone involved in the report, and even he, as a scientist, said he was surprised by some of the things the research uh, found. Who was he and what did he say? Yeah, I spoke to Michael Imperiali, who is a professor at the University of Michigan and was the chair of the committee that wrote the report. One of the results really surprised all of the researchers, and that's the ability to engineer bacteria to enter a person's gut and, once there, create toxic chemicals that would make people sick. This technology is especially sinister because it masquerades as a naturally occurring pathogen, like E. coli, which makes it extremely difficult to identify as an intentional attack. Basically, the victim would show symptoms of a toxic chemical, but it's really an infectious agent that caused the illness. He told me that it never really occurred to the 
researchers that this type of biological and chemical attack could be carried out. They made some recommendations in the report aimed at helping the government counter these threats. What were some of those things that they outlined? Well, the report mostly focused on the emerging threats themselves and not what the government should do, but it does recommend that a framework should be built to address synthetic biology capabilities and their implications. Additionally, the government needs to strengthen its preparedness against naturally occurring diseases that exist today, such as Zika or Ebola. The current public health infrastructure has long been criticized for being too reactionary and not putting enough resources into prevention. The government does already have a list of potentially dangerous agents, but the bacteria I mentioned earlier that the Canadian scientists use wasn't even on that list. So Imperiali says that it shouldn't be so heavily relied on because it could be missing harmful agents that bad actors can use. Now, even though some of these threats we've discussed might still be unattainable for bad actors, and these are kind of worst-case scenarios, there is another report, it's from the Lexington Institute, that says weapons used in biological warfare are already here and available for these threat actors. Can you elaborate on what they said? Sure. Well, once again, a great example of that is the process that the Canadian scientists made public that I mentioned earlier by using that disease that's already available. Additionally, precursors for chemical weapons are used commercially, things like blister, blood, or nerve agents. And the technology to spread those agents through organisms is also widely available. That kind of brings us back to the dual-use problem. There are some 30,000 chemical agents that are manufactured commercially for non-malicious use, so it would be pretty hard to monitor or stop their production. As long as those chemicals, along with vital emerging biological capabilities, are used properly, they make our lives better and can be really life-changing for some people. But that all changes if a bad actor decides to use them for nefarious purposes. Like Imperiali told me, there's something about a biological attack that, that raises a special level of fear because it can be spread and carry on without anybody knowing. Yes, definitely scary. Thank you for updating us on this important topic, Lily. No problem. Thanks, Holly. The 2016 U.S. presidential elections were fraught with foreign interferences, email hacking, and a slew of other cybersecurity issues. Now, all eyes are on the U.S. midterm elections in November. But has the government gone far enough in securing its elections infrastructure? Cybersecurity editor Megan Gates is here to discuss this issue. Hi, Megan. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, Holly. Thanks for having me. Give us a little bit of background on when you were writing this story and what did you find as far as where the U.S. stands from an election cybersecurity standpoint? What are some of the measures that the country has taken to stem any threats and vulnerabilities? Yeah, 2016 really highlighted a lot of the vulnerabilities in the U.S. electoral system. Uh, We've written about them in security management, but then just, you know, mainstream media coverage. We saw that voter database systems were compromised. Both major political parties, the Democratic National Committee and the Republican National Committee were breached by hackers. And also Democratic candidate Hillary Clinton's campaign was especially compromised when her chief of staff, John Podesta, he opened a phishing email that allowed hackers to gain access to internal campaign communications. And then those communications were leaked regularly to the media before the election. We also saw a slew of social media influence efforts conducted by groups associated with Russia. We're still learning more every day about about what happened and what they had access to, and that's an ongoing investigation. Um, So to sort of address these vulnerabilities, ahead of the midterm elections in November 2018, 
2018, Congress authorized $380 million for the U.S. Election Assistance Commission to issue to states and territories to improve the administration of U.S. federal elections. So states can use this money for anything, but they can also use it for enhancing and improving election security, like sending election officials to cybersecurity training or purchasing new voting machines that can be audited to create a paper trail of how people voted and measures like that to beef up election security overall. And some states have claimed this money, some haven't yet, and each are using the money in their own way. Yes, and despite all of these efforts, the funding and the promises of support from the U.S. government to states, some experts are still expressing skepticism that this funding and these efforts won't really help. So what did sources tell you? Yeah, so that was an interesting thing of the people that I spoke to. You know, there's this chunk of $380 million, uh, but if you divide it up between the 50 states and the various U.S. territories, that's not a huge amount of money for, for anybody to sort of address this major issue of election security. And I spoke at length with John Dixon. He's the principal at the cyber firm Denim Group and former U.S. Navy intelligence officer. And he's had meetings with several election officials, including regular meetings with officials in his current state of Texas, where he's based out of. And a lot of them have talked to him about not only the technical risk of what's going on with election security, but also the political risks associated with the money that's been given to the states and and territories to deal with election security. John said, for instance, it might make the most sense you know, if you're looking to enhance cybersecurity overall, to focus your efforts around the systems that are used to collect voting information data and then report that out to beef that up. But then if the state holds on to all that money and they don't distribute it down to the lower levels, to the local county level, then it looks bad for those officials. It looks like they're withholding money. And Megan, as an effort to bolster election cybersecurity overall, the Department of Homeland Security did classify elections infrastructure as part of U.S. critical infrastructure in 2017. So did that designation change anything, Megan? So it changed some things. Um, It allowed, for instance, the, the DHS to help states set up the Elections Information Sharing and Analysis Center to share threat indicator information. These analysis centers exist for all the other critical infrastructure sectors and are used to share threat indicator information with stakeholders who've been cleared to participate in them. But it also allowed DHS to help certain election officials get security clearances so they have more access to threat indicator information. However, one area that's not included in DHS's definition of what election critical infrastructure is are campaigns themselves and major political parties. So the same sort of thing that happened with Hillary Clinton or with the DNC or the RNC could theoretically happen again because they're not necessarily getting direct support from DHS as designated critical infrastructure. Now, like you said, November is coming up quickly and we're hearing a lot in the news about how states are still apparently vulnerable. So can you give us any dates on this issue, you know, since we went to press. Yeah, so it seems like there's something almost every single week about election security, obviously, because it's a big topic going into the the midterms in just a couple of months. And so one of the big announcements came earlier this year from Microsoft. One of their executives, Tom Burt, spoke at the Aspen Security Forum in July. 
and the company reiterated in a blog post that it's seeing similar phishing attacks, like those that were targeted towards Hillary Clinton's campaign, uh, targeted towards other political parties and candidates. We've also seen a denial of service attacks during primaries in Knox County, Tennessee, along with two distributed denial of service attacks on Democratic campaigns. And then to sort of address some of these problems, Alphabet, Google's parent company, and uh, a cybersecurity company, Cloudflare, they've started offering free distributed denial of service protection to election-related groups to kind of help them out and because, you know, they're equally concerned about these campaigns being attacked. And then we also saw again at, at Black Hat and DEF CON demonstrations and briefings about vulnerabilities in voting machines, in election websites, just basically anything and everything that you could think of related to U.S. elections. And then, you know, U.S. national security officials have been briefing Congress and the White House press corps regularly talking about, you know, that cyber actors are continuing to engage in nefarious activity toward our, our nation's elections system. Yes, and as we've seen with the past elections, it's going to be a while before we even know whether or not anything happened in November. Is that correct? As far as being hacked, it might not be obvious till later. Yeah, I mean, like we saw in 2016, it wasn't until there was full analysis really in December and then going into January when national security leaders briefed Congress, they briefed the White House. This is what we saw and, you know, and this is what could happen again. Definitely. Thank you so much, Megan. Thanks for having me, Holly. Finally, if you're headed to GSX 2018 in Las Vegas at the end of this month, be sure to check out the D3 Experience, Drones, Droids, Defense. Supported by the Association for Unmanned Vehicle Systems International, this special pavilion will feature the latest in robotics and unmanned technologies, as well as a chance to test out your skills as a drone pilot. To discuss the latest in drone technologies and the security implications around them, I interviewed Marco Rubin, Senior Investment Director at the Center for Innovative Technology, a Virginia-based nonprofit that helps entrepreneurs fund their ideas for the next high-growth technology companies. Hi, Marco. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Holly. I appreciate being on the show. We're here today to talk about drones. This topic has been big in the security industry. We've come a long way in the last few years with drones. They're becoming more and more sophisticated. What are some of the unique ways in which you're seeing these unmanned vehicles being used? We're seeing an evolution, and maybe the context, to take a step back, I'm part of an investment team, and in that capacity, we look at aerospace and space systems investment opportunities, and and, and in doing so, we see no shortage of entrepreneurs all over the entire UAS value chain. By that, I mean we see the sensors, the software that integrates the images, we see the airframe, you know, for whether it's a quadcopter or a different kind of configuration. We see the entire spectrum of, of opportunities, and we're asking ourselves the question, are these appropriate tech-grade investments that we can get behind? And in, and in doing so, we've seen a lot of interesting technologies. One area, for example, that's just recently gotten on our radar screen is, is safety. For instance, we have seen some questions about quadcopters and exposed blades and, and physical contact of, of airframe when you lose a motor. And we've seen a class of entrepreneurs focus on the airframe and, and more reliable, safer systems. And it, it ranges from a completely new design that encloses the blade and, and, and creates a fail-safe landing system to uh, higher reliability technology. And these are often driven by the customers that they serve. So as you might imagine, a, 
a governmental sort of application will have more stringent safety and security standards than one might see on the commercial side. So one of the key variables we look at is who are they serving? How are they going to go about fulfilling a platform for that particular product? So it's pretty much all over the map in terms of reliability, quality, safety, and security. Yes, so interesting to hear about these nascent companies and what their pitches are for creating new unmanned vehicles and new technology around it. What are some of the biggest security considerations when it comes to building these drones and vehicles that you think those companies and manufacturers, designers should keep in mind? When I see an entrepreneur who is at the very beginning of a process building a new company focusing on an airframe, for example, to build on the example I used earlier, all of their energies are focused on getting that vehicle airworthy and to, to suit the requirement they're targeting. You might imagine in that process, that's a complex endeavor. And, and often what gets lost is the broader thought process of how do I make in security from the very earliest design stages of building that. And someone might say, well, you know, wait a second, there are vendors that do, for example, secure comm data links. I think there's a couple of, a whole bunch of vendors, but one was Regulus. And they build competent sensor and data link technology for, for that sort of defensive purpose. But it's not necessarily a systems view from the entrepreneur's perspective. So one of the areas we're seeing is a lot of the innovation is coming from these entrepreneurs. And some of the questions in, in my mind are, gee, uh, who's responsible if the technology gets hacked? Is there a vulnerability? Is there a liability for uh, other parties, both the vendor and, and maybe even backers? So we're, we're looking at risks involved with these younger companies that are developing some interesting technologies. And some are thinking about it. Some are using other vendors' materials. Others are quite frankly, not thinking about it at all. And then just to draw on the earlier example, some have uniquely developed missions that are purely about safety, purely about being hack-proof, et cetera. So we are seeing kind of early days for security. And if I would also include even beyond drones, I would just broaden the definition and say in autonomy, maritime is included in that. Ground vehicles are included in that. Flight vehicles are included in that. And, and I might even argue satellite communications is now on the commercial side for, for low earth orbiting satellites is becoming more and more of an issue. So as you might imagine, there are a lot of entrepreneurs entering that area, and it begs the same sort of question, which is, hey, they're very competent aerospace engineers or comm systems engineers, but maybe security isn't top of mind if we're not building for the government client. So it's just a question that we are starting to pose to people who are presenting to us. And uh, we are asking the question, where is the market going to be driving this sort of requirement? Will it come from strategic customers? Will it come from the financing sources? Will it come from regulatory bodies? So it's early days from our perspective. And our conversation didn't end there. We went on to talk more about counter drone technology. So be sure to check out that bonus version of the podcast later this month. That does it for this month's episode. We hope to see you later this month at GSX 2018 in Las Vegas. For more information on the show and the D3 experience, be sure to check out www.gsx.org. Thanks again for tuning in to this edition of Security Management Highlights. Once again, I'm your host, Associate Editor Holly Gilbert-Stowell. Until next time, bye-bye.